I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music, beefs, and feuds, and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And today we're throwing it back old school to what may be the primordial rock rivalry. We're taking it back to the dawn of Sun Records and the feud between Elvis Presley and Jerry Lee Lewis. The king versus the killer. I can't wait. Elvis Presley is known as the king of rock and roll, but Jerry Lee Lewis is the king of rock and roll wild men. Like I, like I feel like if, if Jerry Lee started his career today, he would be canceled in about five minutes. <laughs> you know, his story is filled with scandals involving drugs, booze, guns, underage cousins, two dead wives, including one he might have murdered, one bass player that he accidentally shot in the chest, and many other unmentionables. Compared to Jerry Lee, even with his own foibles, Elvis looks like an angel, which might be why Jerry Lee literally tried to kill Elvis at one point, <laughs> which we'll get into in this episode. There's so much crazy rock and roll lore to parse here. I can't wait to get into it. So without further ado, let's get into this mess. It all begins with Elvis, as so many rock and roll tales do. You know the story. Little boy from Tupelo, Mississippi, born in a two-room shotgun shack. It's like a Chuck Berry lyric. He was a shy kid. He gave his first musical performance at a singing contest in his elementary school at age 10. And he was dressed as a cowboy. He stood on a stool to reach the mic. And the best part is he only came in fifth place, which, I mean, I want to talk to those other four people who, like, for the rest of their lives were like, yeah, you know, I beat Elvis in a singing contest, right? Like, how wild would that be? I mean, how many times a day they slip that into the conversation? Yeah, like, where are those people today? What are they doing? Please get in touch. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Soon after this, he got a guitar for Christmas, which bummed him out because he wanted a bike or a gun. Typical Mississippi <laughs> kid. He learned it and started bringing it to school to sing hillbilly music during lunchtime, and he was 
Seen as kind of a loner and teased as being a mama's boy and even called trashy for playing this kind of wild hillbilly music. And uh, one of uh, his classmates uh, was the younger brother of a musician named Mississippi Slim, who had a radio show on a local Tupelo station. And he would take Elvis down to the station and Slim would give him guitar pointers. And that became one of his early musical influences. The Presleys also lived in a predominantly black neighborhood where he absorbed those musical influences as well. So you've got this hillbilly music played by, you know, Memphis Slim or Ernest Tubb or Hank Snow mixed with the blues music that he heard in his neighborhood. He loved like Rosetta Tharp, for example, and the gospel that he knew from Pentecostal churches. This all blended into the very unique, you know, musical gumbo that became Elvis's sound. Yeah, Elvis to me in many ways was was like a modern man before his time. You know, he loved music and he'd listen to anything. You know, it didn't matter where it came from. If he liked it, he liked it. You know, there was the R&B and hillbilly music, of course. But like you said, he was also into gospel music and he loved blues. And he was into like crooners like Dean Martin and Perry Como as well. And even like the opera singer Mario Lanza, he was a big fan of him as well. And I feel like Elvis generally had like really good taste and... In a way, I wonder, like, if his greatest talent was as a curator. You know, like, he had a gift for being able to recognize what was good and synthesize it into, like, one thing that he did in a very unique way. If you look at Elvis's early life, I feel like it takes, like, a really crucial turn when he turns 13. That's when his family moves to Memphis, which is, you know, of course, one of the great American music cities of all time. And this is around the time that, like, Elvis is hanging out in local juke joints and watching live music. And he actually got to know... B.B. King a little bit at this time. Like this was, this was like when B.B. King was also really young and before he was famous. Elvis also started playing music around like the public housing complex where he lived. So he was starting to like dabble in performance, but he was basically like a loner at this time. Like he had long sideburns. He had like relatively long hair for the time and he slicked it back. Kind of looked like a truck driver at the time. And he was like a real sort of iconoclast at his school. He didn't sing publicly until 1953. That's when he entered a talent show at his high school. And he would later say that, like, you know, I wasn't popular in school, but then I entered in this talent show. And when I came on stage, I heard people kind of rumbling and whispering and so forth because nobody even knew I could sing. And it was amazing how popular I became in school after that. And yeah, I can just picture this. It's like the scene in the biopic about <laughs> Elvis, like where he starts to become the king. It all begins at this moment. But the scene that I would have always assumed that would have been in a biopic is actually a myth. You know, everyone knows this this story of Elvis going to Sam Phillips' Sun Records in, in August of 1953 to, you know, the myth is that he went to cut two songs as a birthday present for his mom, which that was sort of the story that was put around, which is, you know, very much in the Elvis image of being this like sweet mama's boy. But in fact, he showed up just, you know, because he was an ambitious guy. I mean, it, uh, the author Peter Gorolnik, who wrote the, you know, definitive Elvis memoir, Last Train to Memphis, uh, and, and the, there's a part two called Careless Love, uh, he talks about there was a much cheaper recording machine down the road at like a general store. So if Elvis just wanted to make a song, you know, record for his mother for a birthday, he could have done it much cheaper and easier down the street. So he definitely had his sights on being discovered when he showed up to, to Sun Records. And the, uh, the receptionist tried to get a gauge on what kind of musician he was and asked him who he sounded like. And it, I love his reply. He said, I don't sound like nobody, which is a hell of an intro and, you know, very true. Sam Phillips wasn't in that day, the, the guy who ran the company, but the receptionist liked what she heard and left a note for Phillips saying to, to hold on to this guy. So for a few months, Phillips wasn't really sure what to do with Elvis. There were a few failed auditions that he went on with other groups. Uh, he was working as a trucker for a time, and some musicians they auditioned for basically told him to stick to his day job. They really weren't into his sound at all. Sam offered him a few songs to sing. It didn't really click with his vocal style until Elvis and the sort of ad hoc band that Phillips put together just started 
jamming and screwing around in between takes. And they started messing around on a song called That's All Right Mama. And Sam Phillips knew a good thing when he heard it. And that became Elvis's first hit. And the ad hoc band that, that Sam put together was with Bill Black and Scotty Moore, which became, you know, the iconic Elvis backing band. So Elvis is on his way right now to fame and fortune. And we all know the story after that. Jerry Lee Lewis, he's not yet famous at this point, but he's basically moving like on a parallel track to Elvis. Now, Jerry Lee Lewis, he was born in Faraday, Louisiana in 1935, the same year as Elvis. Elvis was born in January of that year. Jerry Lee was born in September. So about like nine months or so separates them at that time. So very close in age. Like Elvis, Jerry Lee was born into poverty. He was raised in the Christian faith and he was drawn to music at an early age. Actually, his parents mortgaged their house to buy Jerry Lee a piano. And like Elvis, Jerry Lee grew up singing gospel music. And while they had a similar Christian background, I feel like their take on Christianity was much different. Like if you listen to like the gospel records that Elvis made, they're very much like sort of talking about the afterlife in this very sort of like peaceful and, and tranquil kind of way. It's looking at like the Holy Spirit as being like a way to sort of save you and to deliver you from darkness. Whereas like Jerry Lee definitely was like of the fire and brimstone variety of Christianity, like where he was very focused on sin and hell and the devil and where, you know, desire is intense and like the punishment for desire is intense. And you can see how these like contrasting views of spirituality were going to like define these guys as they move forward. You know, Jerry Lee would actually like talk later in life about how he like wanted to be a preacher at one point. And his cousin, of course, is Jimmy Swaggart, which I don't know if people still remember Jimmy Swaggart, but like in the 1980s, he was a very famous televangelist, and he actually ended up getting busted in uh, the red light district in New Orleans for uh, messing around with $10 prostitutes. Yeah, Jimmy Swagger and Jerry Lee, I think they both dealt with the devil, shall we say, Jordan. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's a, a good way to put it. So anyway, Jerry Lee, you know, he's getting his first exposure as a performer playing the piano in church. But by the time, you know, he's around 15 or so, he's starting to get into trouble because he's playing like rock and roll versions, essentially, of hymns. And this is also around the time that he earned his nickname, The Killer, which is like one of the coolest nicknames, I think, in rock and roll. Like King of Rock and Roll, that's a pretty cool nickname. But like The Killer, to me, is like untouchable. And it's somewhat ironic given his, you know, eventual life, because again, like he was at one point accused of like killing one of his wives. But he insists that, like, he was called the killer not because he was murdering people, but because he was such a good musician. Like, there's a quote in the just fantastic Nick Tosh's Jerry Lee Lewis biography, Hellfire, where Jerry Lee actually says that he hates that nickname, but he said he's been stuck with it ever since he was a kid. And he said, I don't think they mean it killer like I kill people. I think they mean it musically speaking. And uh, that's my Jerry Lee Lewis impression. I kind of made him sound more Cajun probably than he actually is. But anyway, you get the point. It was pretty good. Pretty good. I mean, yeah, it, it's it's really fascinating, like you said, like how he really leaned into the sort of darker side. And it comes through in his music. Elvis and Jerry, they had similar musical influences growing up in their teenage years. And in 1954, when Elvis's was just, career was just starting to take off with Sun, uh, Jerry Lee was playing nightly you know, honky-tonks in uh, on the banks of the Mississippi. And uh, as he would say years later, he kept hearing the name Sam Phillips and Sun Records. And uh, particularly as Elvis's career continued to rise through 55 and 56. And in 56, when Elvis left Sun Records for a major label deal at, at RCA, Jerry Lee Lewis thinking, you know, being the enterprising uh, uh, piano punisher that we know, thought, you know what? Sam Phillips might be looking for a replacement. So he and his dad drive from Louisiana to Memphis and go straight to Sun Records 
And his associates more or less tell Jerry Lee to kind of lay off the rock and roll. They say, you know, Elvis has got that tied up. Why don't you do something else? So, you know, you, you tell that to Jerry Lee right away. You know, it's like waving a red flag in front of a bull. Elvis is now the man to beat. And so he says, you know what? I don't think so. I think I can beat this guy. Um, and he's talking to the receptionist at Sun Records studio saying, you know what? We, we got all the rock and roll we need. You need a new sound. He said, no, I'm a hit. Oh, they all say that, son. Well, I'm not all. I'm different. Which, again, this guy has got confidence to spare. So for a few months, Jerry Lee was a little more than just like a session man for Sam Phillips. And he played, I didn't realize this, he played on the Carl Perkins song Matchbox and songs by Billy Lee Riley. But this all leads to his first meeting with Elvis, which has been memorialized as the famous Million Dollar Quartet session. Yeah, and you know, it, it's interesting looking back on this because like we have all seen that photo. It's Elvis, it's Jerry Lee Lewis, and it's Carl Perkins. And Johnny Cash was there, but like, was he in the photograph? I don't remember if, he, I don't think he was in the photograph, or if he was, he was like photoshopped in, but I don't think <laughs> he was in that picture. So like, Jerry Lee Lewis really like was not famous at this point. You know, like those other guys were already established stars, but Jerry Lee, like you said, he was this session musician and he had, you know, a lot of confidence, but he hadn't really had like his big hits yet. So like just being in the company of these guys and being photographed with them, I mean, that, you know, is a great way to elevate yourself, you know, to put yourself in the company of these guys. I mean, you look at that photo now and it's like the 50s version of like the traveling Wilburys, essentially. <laughs> just an incredible thing. And it, they actually ended up like recording this session, like Elvis sat at the piano and he was playing, you know, some of his favorite gospel songs like Peace in the Valley and also plays like a show tune called You Belong to My Heart. You know, again, like I don't think anything like incredibly musically momentous came out of this session, but just the fact that these guys were all in the same room together. And again, it captured a moment really before Jerry Lee Lewis was a star. It really was just like history in the making. And I think it elevated Jerry Lee Lewis in a way that would like kind of put him on his way you know, shortly when he started having like his big hits. So as you were saying, Elvis was actually on piano for most of this session. And then as soon as he, he steps up for a minute, Jerry immediately slides in and starts bashing out versions of like When the Saints Go Marching In and other songs. And Elvis is impressed. And he's like, well, the wrong man's been sitting here at this piano. And Jerry Lee is much <laughs> less humble. That was my slight Elvis impression. Jerry Lee was like, I, I dig it. I appreciate yeah, that. Thank you. Thank you. And Jerry Lee's like, yeah, man, I've been waiting to tell you all along. Scoot over. He tells Elvis to scoot over on the piano stool. It's safe to say that Elvis got a kick out of this guy. I mean, at this point, he's, you know, one of the biggest stars in the country. And to have this kind of, you know, rascally guy tell him to scoot over on the piano stool. He likes this. He, he, he's got spunk. So uh, Elvis extends his hand and, you know, they kind of have a proper introduction and Elvis uh, invites him to head over to his, uh, to his house. And Sam Phillips had called the newspaper reporter that day. He's very good at, you know, knowing a publicity moment when he sees one. And uh, Elvis tells the reporter about Jerry Lee. He says, that boy can go. I think he has a great future ahead of him. He has a different style and the way he plays piano just gets inside me. So this co-sign from Elvis right off the bat is definitely a huge boon to Jerry Lee's career. So Jerry Lee ends up becoming a star in 1957 with the release of Whole Lot of Shaking Going On. Ends up being a huge hit. It spends 29 weeks on the pop chart, peaking at number three. It also tops the country and western and R&B charts. And it really puts Jerry Lee on his way. And you can see, like, if you look at his early career, that he's basically following, like, the Elvis Presley template for success. Like, he's on Elvis's label, of course, Sun Records. He used Elvis's former manager as his booking agent who like booked Jerry Lee into like a lot of the same venues in the South that Elvis played when he was building up his career. And, you know, you listen to a whole lot of shaking going on and it's definitely in the same style that Elvis was 
uh, doing at that time. Again, that mix of like hillbilly and R&B music. Although, again, there's, I think, a certain edge to Jerry Lee that like Elvis never really had. But it's interesting because like Elvis, of course, was the first through the door. So like he was always going to be the most controversial. And because Elvis was the trailblazer, in a way, it kind of made it easier for Jerry Lee Lewis to, like to follow in his wake. Like there's there's that example of Jerry Lee Lewis playing the Steve Allen show. Uh, in July of 1957. And this was a year after Elvis did that show. And of course, that was an infamous performance, like where Steve Allen like made fun of Elvis for the song Hound Dog. And I think he like he made him sing that song to an actual dog. <laughs> like a bass you know, hound. Just, yeah. just the idea of like, you know, rock and roll is this fad and like we're going to make fun of this guy and make, you know, try to make him look like a fool on television. Well, Jerry Lee Lewis goes on and he doesn't get the same treatment. He doesn't have to sing to a dog, uh, which is great for <laughs> Jerry Lee Lewis. And we've seen other examples of this in this series where you have, again, the trailblazer, and then you have the person that kind of follows in their wake that benefits from, you know, not having to deal with like a lot of the same problems that the trailblazer had to deal with. And Jerry Lee becomes Sun's biggest seller, and Sam Phillips dotes on him accordingly to the exclusion of the rest of the artists, and he starts getting resented by the rest of the uh, the Sun stable. But, you know, it, with good reason. Great Balls of Fire goes to number two on, on Billboard's single charts in 1958. Another appearance on Steve Allen, an American bandstand. You have Breathless, which was another top 10 record in 1958. And this was written by Otis Blackwell, who'd written two of Elvis's biggest hits, Don't Be Cruel and All Shook Up. May 17th, 1958 is declared Jerry Lee Lewis Day, and Elvis had a similar honor a short time before. I mean, you could definitely see that, you know, he's following in Elvis's footsteps. Absolutely. And, you know, I was just thinking about, like, other examples of this dynamic that we've talked about on this show. Like, you could say that, like, Elvis was like the Beatles and Jerry Lee was like the Rolling Stones. Elvis was Nirvana and Jerry Lee Lewis was Pearl Jam. You know, Elvis was Whitney Houston. Jerry Lee Lewis was Mariah Carey. Elvis was the Backstreet Boys. Jerry Lee Lewis was in sync. You know, we could do this all day long, <laughs> just drawing parallels here. And I think one thing that we've seen in this dynamic in the past is that like the the person who goes second is often like the bad boy alternative to like again the trailblazer who went first you know like the one who comes second tends to be edgier and bolder and they also like tend to talk more smack in the press about the trailblazer you know in, in this situation you know like if elvis was bothered that this guy jerry d lewis was kind of like you know in a way kind of like sucking up some of his energy like, he didn't show it in the press. Like, he was always, like, pretty magnanimous. Like, uh, like around the time that, like, Elvis put out Teddy Bear, and that song was somewhat overshadowed by the success of Whole Lot of Shaking Going On, someone asked Elvis about Jerry Lee Lewis, and, and Elvis said, you know, there's plenty of room for all of us. And, you know, we've talked about this before, that, like, even before Jerry Lee was big, he would, you know, say nice things about Jerry Lee in the press and just talk about how talented he was and... You have to pay attention to this guy because he's a great musician. Jerry Lee, on the other hand, was not magnanimous at all about Elvis. You know, he would never miss an opportunity, basically, to say that he was the actual king of rock and roll and that he was way more talented than Elvis ever was. Now, what's crazy to me is that, like, you actually interviewed Jerry Lee Lewis, didn't you? I did. And, you know, I got to say, I was, this was a few years ago, I was terrified because I had heard all these stories about how he would start interviews by just like throwing a pistol down on the table. Like that was how he would like, <laughs> oh, that was his opening uh, opening gambit. Uh, oh, but it's like yeah. interviewing like a it's like interviewing like a like a serial killer or something. Like I'd be terrified of Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah, I felt like Jodie Foster going to interview Hannibal Lecter, like kind of being led in. It was <laughs> it was very yeah, it was it was pretty freaky. But I mean, it was awesome. It was it was although I will say it was one of those interviews that I kind of wish I had like a real live like subtitles going because he's got that like. Cajun growl that's just sort of like like hardened into this like gravelly. I mean, it was 
kind of hard to understand my points, but he was, you know, he was something. And yeah, even what would it have been? It would have been 60 years later, he was still talking shit about Elvis. He said, Elvis was not rock and roll. He was rockabilly. And that's a lot different from rock and roll. Oh, baby, a lot of shaking going on. Now that's rock and roll. Elvis, Wanda Jackson, and a few of those people, they were rockabilly, but I was rock and roll, and you just can't beat rock and roll. And he, he spoke about this again and again. He hates the term rockabilly. He considers it something that was sort of imposed on these country boys by, uh, by the outside world. But yeah, the, the whole time when he was talking to me, it would just be peppered with these little digs at Elvis. He was saying like, oh yeah, Elvis always took my advice. Little did he know I wasn't always giving him great advice. And he just kind of laughed conspiratorially. <laughs> yeah, it was it, seeing their relationship, even though Elvis is long gone, still seems to sort of continue to this day in his eyes. And uh, yeah, it was, it was funny and really interesting just to sort of see that dynamic play in front of me. <laughs> Now, didn't Jerry Lee tell you about the time that he and Elvis went drag racing? <laughs> yeah. He told me this great story about how they, they both had the same car, which, again, I think is very telling. I, I have no doubt in my mind that Elvis bought something, and then Jerry Lee went out and bought the same thing. But anyway, two Cadillac Eldorados, they saw each other coming, and Elvis apparently pulled into his lane so that they were heading on a collision course, and they were playing a game of chicken. <laughs> So Elvis oh and Jerry God. Lee Lewis are playing a game of chicken in Memphis in two Cadillac Eldorados. According to him... Elvis broke first, uh, and then he jumped out of the car. Of course. Jerry Lee jumped out of his, and Elvis started screaming at him, I'm going to sue you. And Jerry Lee said, sue me? Sue me for what? He said, Mean Woman Blues. I guess um, Elvis had sung the, the song Mean Woman Blues in some one of the movies he did around that. It might have been King Creole. I forget which, which movie it was. And then Jerry Lee covered it later. And Jerry Lee said, no, no, man. I had no idea you even, even sang that song. I just And by, by the way, I rewrote it. I did it all. I made it my own. What are you talking about? So, um, you know, I, I think that uh, Jerry Lee, that's the thing about going second. You can always be the underdog. And every time that you, like, triumph over, you know, the, the main guy, the Goliath, you, you, you look even cooler. And still 60 years later, I think Jerry Lee sees himself as being the, uh, the, the underdog. And it shows just how much he loved being in Elvis's metaphorical rearview mirror. And um, in later years, it's, it sort of makes the other person sound like this resentful lunatic when telling the story. Right? But, uh... Yeah, it was it was definitely it was a fascinating uh, way to spend an afternoon with Jerry Lee talking about playing a game of chicken with Elvis. <laughs> so getting back to the fifties, you know, in nineteen fifty seven, that's a big year for Jerry Lee Lewis. That's a breakout year where he starts to become a big rock star. Getting into nineteen fifty eight, it looks at first like it's going to be an even better year for him. In part because this is the year that Elvis got drafted into the army. So Jerry Lee basically like has the Southern bad boy lane all to himself now. So when times get good for Jerry Lee Lewis, Jerry Lee does what he always does and he self-destructs <laughs> in spectacular fashion. And it happens on May 22nd, 1958, when Jerry Lee arrives at Heathrow Airport in London to begin a concert tour. Now, Jerry Lee happens to be accompanied by a young girl and reporters ask, like, who is this? Is this perhaps your younger sister or like the friend of a younger sister or something? And Jerry Lee says, no, this is my wife. And uh, Jerry Lee says that she's 15 years old, which is pretty gross by itself. But it turns out that she's actually 13 years old and also Jerry Lee's second cousin. Now, this would be like a terrible scandal just on its own, I think. Uh, but it also turns out that Jerry Lee was still married when he married his cousin, so it turns out that I guess he was like an accidental bigamist for like a period of time, like when he's married to multiple women. What blows me away about this is that like 
Jerry Lee didn't seem to know that like people would react badly to this. You know, he didn't try to hide it at all. Well, that's what I mean. Like he was openly talking about this girl. He like paraded her in front of cameras. You know, it'd be like if R. Kelly was like openly a sleaze bag, like in the media. Like if he wasn't trying to conceal that he was with young girls all the time. And it just leads me to believe that like yeah, Jerry Lee just didn't know that this was wrong. You know, like he thought, well, there's nothing wrong with me marrying my cousin. There's nothing wrong with me being with a 13-year-old girl. Uh, however, uh, the uh, the rest of the world did not agree. And Jerry Lee faced a terrible backlash almost immediately. He was blacklisted from the radio. Dick Clark banned him from American Bandstand. He ma- he went from making $10,000 a night to $250 a night. You know, basically, like he was canceled big time. Again, like this would have been a time like where Elvis, he could have taken a shot at Jerry Lee here very easily. Jerry Lee was down for the count. But like when someone asked him about this controversy, you know, again, like when he was in the army, he was stationed in Germany at the time. Elvis said, he's a great artist. I'd rather not talk about his marriage, except that if he really loves her, I guess it's all right. Like, I guess we should admire Elvis's restraint here. But like maybe he actually should have been a little more judgmental. Uh, but I think we're going to find out shortly why Elvis maybe didn't judge Jerry Lee too harshly for marrying an underage girl. Right, exactly. I mean, Elvis didn't have the same kind of spectacular fall from grace, but he had his own slide after his discharge from the army in the early 60s. And this was, you know, the famous sort of rock and roll bleak period. It was after the, you know, the famous crash that killed Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper and Richie Valens and... Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis is canceled and Chuck Berry had some legal issues. And I think little Richard had disavowed rock and roll and went to the church at this point. It was a bleak time filled with, you know, Fabian and Frankie Avalon and those kind of teen idol figures. And, uh, Elvis, his songs that he's putting out are more or less like soundtrack fodder for these really rather horrible movies that he's making. Songs like Fun in Acapulco and Kissing Cousins, which is a little close to home. Uh, Do the Clam, Spin Out, um... And later years, I love how Jerry Lee Lewis lays the sort of dearth of rock and roll in this period squarely at the feet of Elvis. Because he would say in later years, Elvis let the Bobbies take it. Bobby Vinton, Bobby Darren, all the Bobbies. And they turned it into this like sugary saccharine mess. I always think that was funny. (laughs) Jerry Lee blamed him purely for that. Um, But yeah, it coincided in this general late 50s backlash against rock and roll. And then the period before the early 60s British invasion – but like what you were saying earlier, there was a certain sense of Elvis not wanting to kick Jerry Lee because there was the sense of almost by the grace of God go I with, from Elvis because when he was in Germany, he met a teenager named Priscilla who was, I believe, 14 at the time. And, uh, and they started seeing each other casually at first, I should say. Yeah, Elvis was 24 when he met Priscilla. And there was a real effort by like Elvis's wranglers, like including like Colonel Tom Parker and like the guys in the Memphis Mafia. You know, the Memphis Mafia, of course, being like that circle of friends that always surrounded Elvis and and took care of everything for him. You know, they looked at Jerry Lee Lewis and they're like, "Oh my God, Elvis is dating a 14 year old girl. We can't let this get out." So there was a lot of effort made to like basically like make this as like innocent as it could be, you know, basically pursuing, you know, a 14 year old girl when you are a 24 year old man. So like, I guess their early dates like were chaperoned and like when she moved to Memphis, like she lived in a separate house from Elvis. She actually lived with Elvis's mom and dad. Uh, and then she was like going to like a Catholic girls school at the time. Um, and Elvis and Priscilla actually didn't get married until 1967 when she was 21. 
So they did it above board, I guess. And, you know, it is funny to me because, you know, we've talked about how, like, Elvis was first and Jerry Lee was second. And, like, early on, Jerry Lee kind of followed the path that Elvis took to success. But I feel like in this respect, like, Jerry Lee was the trailblazer and Elvis followed him. And, like, Elvis basically, like, used Jerry Lee as an example of what not to do. It's like, well, if I'm going to date an underage girl, I have to keep it secret, at least, from the media. And it worked. I mean, he was able to get away with it. I think it's funny that, like, Jerry Lee, like, knew about this the entire time. And he referred to Priscilla as a live-in Lolita. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, you just wonder, like, like, he must have been, like, pretty irritated that, like, Elvis got away with this thing that, like, ruined his career. And I don't know how much of this was Colonel Tom, but Elvis seemed a lot more image conscious and good at manipulating that than Jerry Lee did. I think Jerry Lee always took the path of, like, this is me, take it or leave it, this is who I am. But Elvis, I think, was more concerned with with how things presented. And obviously that, you know, served him very well. I mean, you think of the famous, like, comeback concert after he was released from the army when he's singing with Frank Sinatra. Like, he knew how to move over into that lane and become the all-around entertainer and graduate from being young, wild rock and roll to something that you could make a bunch of movies. I mean, I can't imagine Jerry Lee making, you know, King Creole or something like that. And, or uh, like, or Clambake, you know, Jerry Lee and Clambake, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, frolicking around, or, or Viva Las Vegas, like, dancing with uh, Anne Margaret. Right. What, what's amazing to me, though, about Jerry Lee is that, like, you know, he has this terrible scandal that, like, for all intents and purposes, like, should have just, like, blacklisted him forever. But he actually, like, did have a comeback in the 1960s. Yeah, at the end of the 60s, he became more of a country artist. He made a lot of inroads in Nashville on the label Smash. And uh, in 1968, he scored some huge hits, like Another Place, Another Time, What Made Milwaukee Famous, Made a Loser Out of Me. She Still Comes Around to Love What's Left of Me. And To Make Love Sweeter for You was his first number one in the country charts since Great Balls of Fire a decade earlier. Yeah, and I just want to do a quick shout out too to like this classic live album that Jerry Lee put out in 1964 called Live at the Star Club. Oh, yeah. Which I don't know if you've heard this. It's like an incredible record. It was recorded in Hamburg, Germany with this band called the Nashville Teens. And it's like one of the most like energetic and like chaotic live records like I've ever heard. Like you feel like you're in the room when Jerry Lee is playing. Like, and whenever I put it on, I just picture like really drunk Germans getting into fist fights in the audience <laughs> while like Jerry Lee is just bashing out like mean woman blues and like what I'd say and all these great songs. And it really is like a fitting contrast like with Elvis for most of the 60s because like Elvis wasn't touring at all at that time. He was just making movies. And like Jerry Lee, you know, meanwhile was like out on the road, like rocking his ass off. And like when you listen to Live at the Star Club, it sounds like he's playing for his life because like in a way he is, you know, it's like he had to, you know, kind of play his heart out or else, you know, he would have just drifted into oblivion. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. 
you can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So he finds his way back to the top of the charts in November 1968 with To Make Love Sweeter for You. Uh, This should be his great moment. You know, he's back after years in the wilderness. But this is when... Elvis awoke the hip swiveling beast within. It's been suggested that Elvis's famous NBC TV special in late 1968 was sort of prodded along by by Jerry Lee Lewis. He saw Jerry Lee back on the top of the charts and and that was sort of what made him think, okay, you know what? I got to quit screwing around in these crappy movies and actually get back to doing what people love me for, which is rocking out. In 1968, it's crazy to think, but Elvis hadn't had a top 10 hit in five years at that point. And this TV special was initially, I think, It was a lot smaller. I think it was supposed to be an addendum to like another movie. It was like part of a movie deal and it was just a small thing. But then uh, it became this huge, big budget extravaganza, which is, you know, one of the most beloved Elvis pieces of film ever. I mean, just when he opens and stares down the camera, singing Trouble and then segueing into Guitar Man. I mean, it's what he does best. I think it's it's maybe my favorite. Totally awesome. Yeah, I think it's my favorite moment of Elvis on film, just that opening shot when he's just staring down the camera lens. And you're right. I mean, it's crazy to think that he hadn't performed live in more than seven years. And with that in mind, it's really nuts how good he sounded. I mean, both physically and vocally, he looks perfect. He's in this like great leather getup that kind of is a cool way to harken back to how he was, you know, in in the 50s, this 20-something guy who drove kids wild on Ed Sullivan. But he just ruled the stage with the supreme confidence. It is great. It is the moment that the king returned for his crown. It was the highest rated TV special of the year. It 
provided a huge shot in the arm to Elvis's music career. And as a direct result of production, he decided to start refocusing on music and the Memphis sound that he originally loved. And within weeks, he recorded Suspicious Minds, which uh, reached number one that year, his first number one in, I think, nearly 10 years. You know, and I have to say that the Elvis of like this period, like in the late 60s and even into the early 70s is like my favorite Elvis period. You know, like he looked and he sounded great, but he had like a more mature outlook that showed that he could grow out of his teen idol image. And you mentioned Suspicious Minds. That's a great song. You have songs like In the Ghetto. You have that record Elvis Country, which is great. Uh, just putting out tons of like wonderful music. Again, I feel like Jerry Lee signifies the wildness of rock and roll better than Elvis. But Elvis ultimately to me is like the greater singer and like the overall better artist. To get back to my earlier point, I think Elvis's greatest talent ultimately was being able to bring together all these different kinds of music in a way that really hadn't been done before. And he made it like make sense, you know, like you listen to the records that he made, you know, after that comeback special in the late 60s and early 70s. And like he's recording songs by James Taylor and the Bee Gees. He's making Christian rock records. He's getting into that like Tony Joe White style swamp rock. You know, he's doing easy listening ballads. There's like R&B. He's like all over the map and it works because it's Elvis and you feel like he's just able to synthesize all these things into one sort of really attractive package. I feel like the operatic background of Elvis isn't appreciated enough. I mean, I think of those clips of like, really, I think towards the end of his life, probably a few months before he died, those shows where he's singing, he's at the piano singing uh, Unchained Melody and he hits that high note and it's just, I mean, he sounds like Caruso or something. I mean, it is this, it, it, you're right. I mean, you hear the opera influence through that and then doing a version of uh, the hymn, How Great Thou Art, I think in the same era of shows, it's just unbelievable to hear that voice. I mean, that's something that, you know, you, you think of the hip swiveling, you think of the, the rock and roll stuff, but just the power of that is really something special. And he uses it really well in this 69, 70 era. I agree. It's one of my favorite Elvis eras. Uh, this is around the time when he's doing a series of shows at the International Hotel in Las Vegas, which is really some of his best shows, I think. And in a move that was either passive aggressive or a genuine act of friendly, you know, Sun Records brotherhood, I can't tell which, Presley tracked Jerry Lee Lewis down to some hotel in Columbus, Ohio, and invited him to see the Vegas show at the International, which... Jerry Lee accepted. So Jerry Lee goes to see Elvis's show at the International Hotel. And uh, Elvis does a really great thing. He introduces him to the crowd. He has, you know, Jerry Lee stand up in the middle. And, and, uh, and the crowd gives him a big standing ovation, which is, you know, I think very sweet. The next year, Jerry Lee will be playing the International with his own band. But he's playing the lounge while Elvis is playing the main room. You can tell that this galled Jerry Lee years later. He's talking to his biographer, uh, Rick Bragg. And uh, you say, yeah, I was playing the lounge, but I mean, the lounge was big. I mean, the main room would seat like <laughs> 3,000 people, but the room I was in would sit like 2,500. So I was hitting Elvis tit for tat. So you can tell even at this point, yeah. years later, he was annoyed by that. Yeah, it was a big lounge. <laughs> I like that as like his defense. It was a large lounge. Yeah, it was, you know, it was almost, the lounge was almost as large as the big room. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that was true. And of course, Jerry Lee had to take shots at Elvis's show at the time. He said like, he had this big band with horns and violins, stuff like that. And I don't think it ever came off that good. He was trying to prove something that didn't really need proven. <laughs> and this is continued in Natasha's book, Hellfire, where he actually writes about, I, I guess, how there was this confrontation, supposedly, between Jerry Lee and Elvis at this time, like where Jerry Lee confronted Elvis about how he felt like he wasn't really staying true to his rock and roll roots. Like in the book, it says, you don't know what you're doing. You're just Colonel 
Parker's puppet. And then Elvis shoots back. And this is like one of the few times like where you feel like Elvis actually like fights back against Jerry Lee. He says, well, if I'm so dumb and you're so smart, how is it that I'm playing the main room and you're playing the lounge? Which The very big lounge. Yeah, Elvis didn't know how big this lounge was. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he's taking a shot at Jerry for doing that. And, you know, I guess like Jerry Lee also had an issue with Colonel Tom Parker. Like in that anecdote, he like accuses Elvis of being Colonel Tom Parker's puppet. Apparently there was like another incident like where Jerry Lee was like hanging out in Elvis's dressing room and like Colonel Tom Parker like kicked Jerry Lee out and like Jerry Lee was like, I wouldn't let no loudmouth old man tell me who I can have a drink with. <laughs> so yeah, again, I feel like this is like uh, an instance again, like where I think Elvis was genuinely trying to be nice to Jerry Lee Lewis and, and Jerry Lee just like couldn't really appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, there were some other small, petty incidents between them in the 70s. It was mostly Jerry Lee as the guilty party. He would talk shit about him in the press about betraying rock and roll in the early 60s. <laughs> he had a great quote. There's very few great talents left. You got Elvis Presley, Chuck Berry, Charlie Rich, B.B. King. I'm not saying I'm one of them. I'm saying I'm the main one. <laughs> <laughs> which is great and he records a cover of billy swan's i can help and he's launching into his piano solo and he, he goes on the mic and says think about it elvis right in the piano break i mean he, he loves taunting elvis and elvis meanwhile uh i guess the only way that he kind of played along was i guess um jerry lee got his own learjet and so elvis responded by getting a bowen 707 jet which I, I'm fairly certain is significantly larger than a Learjet. Oh, yeah. So they moved on from competing over Eldorados, and uh, now they're moving on to, to having a pissing match with Jets, which is, uh, which is great. I think you can, like, see the plane at Graceland. I think it's across the street. And, like, the TCB, taking care of business, is, like, written on, like, the back fin of the plane. It looks very badass. And, it, yeah, definitely larger than a Lear. Jet. And this goes down in 1976, the nation's bicentennial year. And this was a tough one for Jerry Lee. He was arrested for accidentally shooting his drummer, which is quite a sidebar feud there. Yeah, it was an accident, Jordan. We have to emphasize that it was an accident. For legal reasons. Which makes it okay. We, yeah, we will emphasize that it was an accident. Uh, and this was also the year that Jerry Lee took Elvis up on his offer to visit Graceland, and he got arrested for it. And now this is probably the single most mythical moment between these two. It went down in the early morning hours of November 23rd, 1976. It was actually his second attempt to enter Graceland that week. Uh, the same time the previous evening, he rolled up in his Rolls Royce, only to be told by the gate guard that Elvis was asleep. So Jerry Lee very politely thanked the guy and drove off, uh, but later crashed his Rolls Royce and was cited for driving not only under the influence, but without a license. And then so the next day he returns and there are really two versions of what happened next. You have Elvis's version and Jerry Lee's version. Yeah, so the Elvis version is that Jerry Lee rolls up to Graceland at like three in the morning. <laughs> and uh, this time he's driving a new Lincoln Continental. Not supposed to be driving. Did he like buy the car that earlier that day? I mean, I, I don't know if he already had this car or if he bought a new car after crashing the Rolls Royce. But anyway, he has a Lincoln Continental, and he's uh, very drunk at the time, and he's very angry, and he happens to be armed with a uh, 38 Derringer, and he's waving it around, basically, and he's screaming, and he's saying that he, like, I want to see Elvis. Now, the Memphis Mafia guys, you know, they're lounging about, they're probably playing poker or something, <laughs> eating corn chips, you know, whatever <laughs> it is that the Memphis Mafia guys do. They see this and they like, we can't let this maniac near Elvis. So they decide to call the cops. And uh, during all the commotion, Elvis actually wakes up and he calls down and he says, what does that goddamn guy want? All I want to do is sleep. I don't want to talk to that crazy son of a bitch. 
Elvis tells his guard to, quote, lock his butt up and throw away the goddamn key. And then he basically, like, gets a bowl of popcorn and starts watching the drama unfold on his closed-circuit TV. <laughs> That's the best now, part. Now, um, Jerry Lee, this is the second time he's been turned away. So he's, like, really angry that he's uh, been rebuked. So he gets behind the wheel of his car. Again, he's drunk as hell. He's armed with a thirty-eight, <laughs> And he starts ramming the gate with his brand new Lincoln Continental. And uh, apparently, like, you know, I don't know what he was going to do if he got inside Graceland. You know, again, like I said this earlier, that he, like, literally tried to kill Elvis. I don't know if he was actually going to shoot Elvis. But, like, he was obviously not in the right mind at this time. But he didn't end up hurting Elvis. He only hurt himself uh, because he tried to throw an empty champagne bottle through his uh, car window. Unfortunately, the car window, I think, was closed. So he <laughs> broke the window <laughs> with this empty champagne bottle. And he got, like, a bunch of glass in his face and, you know, cuts and all that stuff. So... That is the Elvis version of this story. Now, Jerry Lee, like, he was basically saying, like, hey, man, I was just playing around, right? I mean, like, he was trying to downplay the seriousness of this incident. Yeah, he basically was saying that uh, he was he was coming from a club, and you know what? The club owner had something to do with local law enforcement and gifted him this gun. And it was, it was a, good, a nice gun. He, was, he appreciated having it. And he put it on the dashboard of his car so that if he got pulled over or something and they found it on him, he wouldn't be arrested for carrying a concealed weapon. It wasn't concealed. It was right on top of the car. And so he pulled up, and, you know, totally logical, great Jerry Lee Lewis logic right there. He pulls up to Elvis's mansion, Graceland, talks to the gate guy. The guy at the gate sees the gun and says, what, are you going to kill Elvis? And Jerry Lee, just totally just to razz the guy as a joke, is like, yeah, that's right. I'm going to kill, kill Elvis. That's exactly what I'm here to do. Uh, and according to Jerry Lee, it was just a, a joke that got out of hand. All he wanted to do was to see his friend. And he would say, go on record saying that he was really hurt that Elvis, uh, you know, allowed him to, to be locked up. I mean, he, was, he was charged with carrying a pistol and public drunkenness. And um, it, it really hurt his feelings. And uh, I believe that was the last time they ever saw each other. And they didn't see each other. The last time they ever interacted. Yep. I think Jerry Lee ended up getting cited for, like, carrying a pistol in public drunkenness and released on a $250 bond. You have to love Memphis. <laughs> like, I love that. That's all that happened to Jerry Lee. That's all they, That's all he had to pay to get out of jail. But, yeah, you know, Jerry Lee and Elvis, they never saw each other again because, sadly, as we all know, on August 16th, 1977, Elvis Presley passed away at the age of 42. Quick aside about this, you know, Elvis... Uh, and Jerry Lee Lewis were both customers of the infamous Dr. Nick, mm. who, like, was the doctor. Like, I think he eventually lost his license because he was, like, over-prescribing drugs to Elvis, you know, and that obviously contributed to his death. But I think he, like, continued to hook Jerry Lee Lewis up with drugs, like, after that happened. Like, if you read stories about Jerry Lee Lewis in the early 80s, he was, like, literally, like, taking, like, a hypodermic needle and, like, injecting drugs into his stomach because he had, like, stomach issues at the time. And apparently that didn't really help his stomach. It just made his stomach issues worse. Uh, which you never would have predicted that that would happen, that, you know, drunk-ass Jerry Lee Lewis shoving needles into his stomach would be a bad thing. But at the time when Elvis died, someone asked Jerry Lee Lewis what he thought about it. And Jerry Lee Lewis was, uh, let's say, again, like, he didn't have great relations with the press. You know, this goes back to the 50s. He's showing off his underage bride to the press. You know, flash forward now to the death of Elvis. You would think that he would offer, you know, solemn words of, of tribute or condolences to his family. No, Jerry Lee doesn't do that. What he says instead is that I was glad that Elvis died. Just another one out of the way. I mean, Elvis this, Elvis that. All we hear about is Elvis. 
What the shit did Elvis do except take dope I couldn't get hold of? Uh, Look, we've only got one life to live. We don't have the promise of the next breath. I know what I am. I'm a romping, stomping, piano playing, son of a bitch, a mean son of a bitch, but a great son of a bitch, a good person. I don't know about that, Jerry Lee. Never hurt nobody unless they got in my way. And uh, I'm sure that he was like out of his mind drunk when he gave this quote. At least I hope he was like not in his right mind when he gave it. But like he said something later that I think is actually like pretty telling of like both his own worldview. And I think a, a fairly accurate summation of Elvis. You know, he said, I got a mean streak in me. Elvis did too. He hid his. I didn't hide mine. I got to lay it open sometimes. And, you know, whatever you want to say about Jerry Lee Lewis, I mean, I think he is maybe like a legitimately evil guy, like in a lot of ways. He's not dishonest. You know, he's upfront with his demons. And, uh, you know, that's true, I think, for better or worse. Yeah, I think that Elvis got away with stuff because he played the good Southern mama's boy. And Jerry Lee was just always unapologetically, you know, as he named one of his albums, a mean old man. And, uh, you know, I'd like to think that Sam Phillips sort of judged how these two guys felt about each other. He had a great quote where he said, for two monumental people, you know you're going to have a little jealousy, which is really good if it doesn't go beyond the bounds of reasonable taste. Elvis Presley, every time he had the chance to listen to Jerry Lee, he did. Every time Jerry had a chance to listen to Elvis, he did. It wasn't just camaraderie. It was total respect for each other as great musicians. Where do they rank in the pantheon of music? Uh, I'll let Jerry Lee have the line. Uh... After me was Elvis. And uh, coming from Jerry Lee, that's high praise. (laughs) All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. 
and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. We've now reached the part of our episode where we give the pro side of each part of the rivalry. Let's talk about Elvis Presley first. This might be an insane argument to make, but I kind of feel like at this point, Elvis is maybe like a little bit underrated. Hmm. I, I think like the worst thing to happen to his legacy was being dubbed the king of rock and roll because it always compels people to take him down a peg. I mean, it's true. Elvis is just one part of a scene in like that early 50s rock and roll world that includes Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Buddy Holly, and of course, Mr. Jerry Lee Lewis. And all those artists are kings of rock and roll. What I would say about Elvis, though, is that I think his music was the broadest out of all those icons. Like, he drew on a wider range of influences, and I think he was able to synthesize just an incredible amount of music in a way that hadn't really been done before. Yeah, I agree. Of all those other people you mentioned, I almost think I would listen to, of the Chuck Berry's, Little Richard's, Buddy Holly's, Jerry Lee Lewis's, I think I would listen to Elvis's last in that list, just because I find the others so much more fiery and, and just compelling. But as a figure, I am... Absolutely and completely captivated by Elvis. I've been to Graceland. I've, I've watched many docs and books about him. And I'm still, it's the same way I feel with the Beatles too. It's this spell. It's this this phenomenon that I still struggle to, to make sense of how this, this whole industry around him and the cultural impact and just even just the economics of it all was just all by this one guy. And that was the craziest part of going to Graceland too because you go there and, you know, it's like seeing the Mona Lisa or something. It's a lot smaller than you you built it up in your mind. And the human scale of it is really fascinating. So just to think about how one guy could have such an oversized impact like that is just is so, so, so interesting to me. But like I said, musical talent, I don't think this is a really you know groundbreaking argument. I, I, I think that Jerry Lee outranks him in that department. But vocally, yeah, I think that his his musical style really ran the gamut from, you know, rock and roll growl, some of the, the gospel stuff that he did in later years. I think it was amazing as his country records. Uh, I, I definitely think he had a wider musical palette than Jerry Lee. So if we go over to the Jerry Lee Lewis side, you know, so much of our show is talking about like crazy people in rock bands. But like <laughs> Jerry Lee Lewis to me is like the original rock and roll maniac. And I think he might be crazier than anyone else in rock history. I mean, like the passage of time hasn't really dulled the dangerous edge of his music or his persona. Like I think, again, if he did any of the things that he did in the 50s now, like he'd probably be canceled even quicker than he was in the 1950s. And uh, I still feel like today, like there's no one that can hold a candle to him just as far as being an incredible character. Like, you know, we talked about Marilyn Manson in a recent episode, but like so much of him is like constructed. 
Mm. There's nothing constructed about Jerry Lee Lewis. If anything, there's probably lots of terrible things that we don't know about him. <laughs> He's like an like a sinister onion, you know, like with just layers of evil upon evil. But it gives him, I think, an edge. Uh, and but I, it gives him, I think, an edge that just makes him totally unique in rock history. And that's a, in addition to his music, which I think today, even now, is still great and it's still loud and it's still raucous. And like, if you like again, edgy, dangerous rock and roll, Jerry Lee Lewis is always going to be at the top of that list. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jerry Lee was a better pure musician than Elvis, and they both knew it. Elvis once said that if he could play piano like Jerry Lee, he would quit singing. I think musically, Jerry Lee contributed more to the genre than than Elvis did. I think he's truer to the spirit of rock and roll. I mean, the sex, the drugs, the guns, the insanity. I mean, even though Elvis may be the sort of rock star archetype, I'm hard-pressed to name someone who lived a more rock and roll life than Jerry Lee Lewis. So if we look at these guys together, I mean, look, as we've talked about in this episode, they pushed and they prodded each other, like, for, for decades. You know, and, and in a way, this is somewhat reductive, but you could say that it was a battle between God and Satan, you know, for <laughs> the soul of rock and roll. And uh, they also, you know, were, and of course, when they both ended up dating teenagers, they were kind enough to look the other way. So, you know, <laughs> even though they were battling, they were nice when it came to their uh, underage brides. Give the final word to Jerry Lee again. Elvis was the greatest, but I'm the best. Okay, well, this is the part of the episode that like, where we would normally, like, I, I guess I would normally say, like, a terrible pun, and then we would say, like, we're going to be back next week <laughs> with more uh, beefs and feuds and long-simming resentments. And actually, we did record that part of this episode when we originally, like, like did this uh, this thing, but, like, we found out after we recorded this episode that, like, iHeartRadio is not going to be picking up our option so, like, we are no longer on the network, which means, like, for you, like, you don't really care what network we're on. But it means that, like, I don't know where the show goes from here. At best, at the moment, we are going on hiatus. There have been discussions that we might end up on another network, in which case we'll be back soon and everything will proceed as normal. But uh, it's also possible that this is, like, the last episode of Rivals ever, which is, like, a surprise and a disappointment, but I think the moral of the story here is that you don't make fun of David Geffen. I think the the long arm of David Geffen <laughs> has uh, taken us out, Jordan. So I, you know, I'm I'm sorry to say it. You know, hopefully we'll be back. But you know, if we're not, it's been a pleasure doing this with you. And uh, you know, I hope everyone enjoyed the show while it lasted. I just gotta say, man, I knew I shouldn't have criticized the boys of summer. Yeah, that really was. That's probably it. It was Don <laughs> Henley and uh, David Geffen. They finally made up. And uh, they were like, let's conspire to take out this medium popular music podcast so that we can feel something again. Yeah, I, I think that's what happened. Uh, again, it's disappointing, but life goes on. Again, we may be back, but we may not be back. I don't know. This is like a cliffhanger that we're leaving you on. So if we are back, I look forward to uh, talking to you guys again about these simmering resentments and beefs and feuds soon. If this is our last episode, thank you for your support. You know, we had an outpouring of uh, very nice comments on Twitter uh, when, when I said that we were uh, being dropped by iHeart, and I really appreciate that. And I uh, I know, Jordan, I'm, I'm sure you appreciate it, too. So thank you all for listening. Maybe for the last time, but, you know, maybe not. We'll see. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm sort of sad that this is audio and not video, so we can't do any, like, montages to that Green Day song or In My Life or something. But, yeah, I mean, I feel like Captain Von Trapp at the end of The Sound of Music, you know, like, Rivals listeners, like, 
may not be seeing you again for perhaps quite a long time, but I just want to say thank you to everyone who listened, tweeted at us, left nice reviews. I mean, we read them and I, I can't tell you how much it means to us both. And you know, you get into music at a certain age because it makes you feel less alone. It makes you feel connected. And just the chance to do that with all of you through the show was just so extremely special. And I also got to say, if you're a music fan and you get a chance to talk to Stephen Hyden, it's a joy. If you're a music journalist and you get a chance to talk to Stephen Hyden, it's an education and a privilege. You know, I mean, for, for anyone listening, I don't care how many books you've read. I don't care how many documentaries you've seen. Hell, you could have interviewed the artists themselves. Stephen still knows more about them just off the dome. I mean, his wealth of knowledge at his fingertips is deep, vast and awe-inspiring. It was my first time doing a podcast and really my first time on a mic since I did a radio show in college. And, you know, writers tend to be silent, shy types, and uh, at least in my case. And if you're doing something with Stephen Hyden, I don't care what it is. He will make you better at it. Wow. So I just want to thank him as well. That is incredible. That, and, uh, that, that yeah, is incredibly we, sweet, Jordan. I feel like that is not really true to the spirit of the show. I feel like we should be ending this on like a feud <laughs> between you and I. So I'm just going to say that uh, your episode outlines way too long. And uh, I'm, a, I'm, and I'm gonna be throwing a shoe at you the next time I see you in person. So, so look out for the uh, Jordan Runta versus Stephen Hyden feud. It's gonna get ugly once this episode ends. So, like, look forward to that. So, on that note, I think it's time to wrap up. So, thank you again for listening. Maybe for the last time, we'll find out soon. Take care. Thanks, everyone. And Stephen, you heard from my lawyer. <laughs> Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The producer is Joel Hatstadt. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.